0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au Now we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews has been, in different ways, encouraging his listeners to persevere on in the faith. To continue to follow Jesus Christ and not abandon him. Now in chapter 3 particularly he spoke from Psalm 95 and so he said don't be like that rebellious generation of Israelites who didn't listen to God's word. May it be a warning to you, an example to you. Don't harden your heart to God's word because if you fall If you turn away from Jesus, you will fall away from the living God. And there's going to be only eternal condemnation for you. And then last week, he sort of again continues to exhort his listeners, but more so in a positive way in terms of what believers would miss out on if they didn't continue to persevere in their faith. And he particularly talked about this idea of God's rest and striving to enter God's rest. Now he kind of took us through different passages of scripture to explain to us what this idea of God's rest was. Now just to recap, if you remember, God created this entire universe in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. And, and that rest means not just uh, resting from his labors of creation, from his work of creation, but it also has the connotation of then resting from his labors and then enjoying all of creation, all the universe that he had made as it reflected his glory. And then we, we saw at that, at that point, on that seventh day, after God saw, created everything and said it was very good, all creation was in perfect harmony. In fact, all creation itself was experiencing a perfect world. And so on this seventh day, when God rested from his works of creation, and he was enjoying all of creation, he also set this day apart. Why? So that all of creation too would enjoy the blessing of a perfect world. And thereby they could glorify God and continue to enjoy God forever. In fact, we even saw that you know, that refrain, there was evening and there was morning. That It was there for the first day of creation, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. But when we come to the seventh day, that refrain of there was evening and morning is not there. And what what it's implying is that this seventh day of God's rest that all of creation had now entered into, experiencing a perfect world, the blessing of a perfect world, and thereby glorifying God and enjoying God, that was to be a perpetual reality. So that after that seventh day of God's rest, every day from then on was meant to be enjoying that rest of God the 8th day, and the ninth day, and the 10th day, and the 11th day, and the 12th day, all of creation was to be in this state. But we saw that man sinned, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and as a result, unrest came into this world. But God's plan was still to restore all of his creation into this rest of God. So that all of creation could enjoy God and glorify him forever. And that plan is what he starts moving forward through the ages. To ultimately bring even a people for himself into this state where they can glorify God in a perfect world and enjoy him forever. And so the author has already talked about some of that even in the first few chapters where he talks about Christ returning and establishing a perfect world, a new world of, of joy and righteousness and peace and all that kind of stuff. That's really, again, another way of saying that's that perfect rest of God, entering that rest of God. You could essentially say it's, it's the new Edenic state. If at, on the seventh day when God rested that was the first Edenic rest state and that was disrupted by the sinfulness of man ultimately when Jesus comes and he establishes his kingdom and there's a new world that will be then the forever Edenic state of rest and so the author's exhortation then is therefore strive now to enter this rest that is still a future reality and it's almost kind of like you know he's trying to get his listeners to say but don't take this lightly take this seriously and it's almost like if you think of you know when when adam and eve were kicked out of the garden And there was the cherubim placed and the the flaming whirling sword that's placed at the entrance of Eden so that no one was able to access Eden anymore because that was God's sword of judgment that anyone who dared to enter there would be slaughtered. And so it, it meant no entry. And so now it's almost like the author is saying, yes, you know, you are here now in the wilderness and you are moving towards this new Edenic rest that Christ will bring. But understand there is still a flaming sword that you have to pass through. And whether you truly have a soft heart, a believing heart, is what will determine whether you will pass through the sword and enter this promised rest, this new Edenic rest. Because for those who have hard hearts, those who have rebellious hearts, they will not be, ent- they will not be allowed to enter into this final future rest of God. So that's what he's going to basically press on to as he talks about the word of God. And there's a sense also in which he's going to tell the Christians to persevere in their faith, and this is what God has given. Yes, it's a powerful, scrutinizing, piercing sword, but it is something that will help you. It is something that will help you, remind you of the truths about God and expose you to who you are, and it will show you your need for the Son. And he has also given you his son, who is your great high priest, who, is, who will sympathize with your every weakness and give you mercy and grace in time of need. I've titled this morning's sermon as God's help in time of need. And we're going to look at this section under two headings. We're going to look at the power of God's Word and more so in how it's piercing and it's judgmental and convicting and lays us bare, and that's in verses 12 through to 13. And then we'll look at the help of God's Son in verses 14 through to 16. So the power of God's Word in verse 12 and 13 and the help of God's Son in verses 14 to 16, both ultimately serve as a help to the believer to continue to persevere in their faith. So firstly, the power of God's word. It says, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. Why? Because the Word of God is an expression of Himself. And therefore God's Word is also living and active as God Himself is living and active. Bringing those things to pass through His Word. Or if we were to put this negatively, it would, we would say it something like this, that God's Word is not dead and Ineffective. It's not really like the word of any ordinary man. See, the word of men, they can't always fulfill what they say. You know, people can fail to keep their word. Either because they were deceptive or because something else has happened and they're unable to keep their word. And even if this person is very powerful and an important person in this world, Even that sort of person can fail to keep their word. And and if you think of, say, an important person, say, from a few centuries ago, has said something, you know, we would say, yeah, he was a powerful person then, but his words have no power right now. But the Bible, on the other hand, it's no ordinary book. It's not simply a book written by men. It is God's word. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, knowing that first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Meaning God spoke through men to write exactly what he wanted them to write in such a way that what we have in the pages of scripture is the very word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 again reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God. Meaning that all of scripture has come out from the very mouth of God. So the author is reminding us, his listeners, that God's word is not like the word of men. No, God's word is living and it is active. Now in the immediate context of Hebrews 4, this word of God that is being referred to is Psalm 95, which the author has been quoting in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. But you could broaden the application not just to Psalm 95, but you could broaden it to say that all of God's word is living. It still speaks. Not merely in some inspirational way, like how you would read the speech of a famous dead person. No, God's word is living. What, was, what God's word had said a few thousand years ago still has bearing and it is effective. It is always speaking in the present. It is always speaking to the hearers in every generation in the present. Just take Psalm 95, for example. You know, God spoke through Moses through the wilderness generation, and he said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And that was meant for that wilderness generation. And then from there, David picks that up and he quotes that in Psalm 95. And over there, God was still speaking through David to the generation of God's people during David's time. When he said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then a few thousand years later, as the author of Hebrews is talking to his original audience, God was still speaking to them. And in fact, now as we open scripture and as we're reading this scripture, God is speaking to us now. His word is still living. He's still speaking to you and me through his word. And he's bringing things to pass through what he has said. And if you think of how active or or in other words how effective God's word is. You know we only have to just go to the very beginning of scripture. And we understand how effective right from this get go we understand how effective God's word is. In the beginning, God simply spoke. And as he said, things came to be out of nothing. It was effective. It was active as exactly what was said came to be. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He said, let there be land and seas and animals. And exactly as God's word said, it came to be. God's word is living and powerful to bring about what it has said. Listen to Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So it doesn't matter if God's word was spoken thousands of years ago, it is still powerful and active and bringing about what it has said. Now, if you're a Christian, you you know how this to be true in some sense. How when the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ came through his word, whether someone was explaining the gospel to you or as you were reading the Bible yourself and then God's word then caused you to be born again, to be converted where that dead heart of yours became alive to God. And now as a Christian, God's word is continuing to change you. That's a way in which God's word is Living and active and in a positive way, working and being effective. But again, in the context of what the author is wanting his listeners to do, to to heed scripture, to not take it lightly, to heed the warning of scripture, to continue to strive on. You know, he's, he wants to talk about the power of God's word in a negative sense, in the way it brings judgment of sin. Now, you just have to go back to the incident of the wilderness generation of Israelites. That generation that came out from Egypt. That generation that refused to enter the promised land after the spies were sent to check out the land. And we saw that God swore an oath saying, except for Caleb and Joshua and the next generation, all those who hardened their heart against the Lord would not enter the land. That they would die as they continue to wander in the wilderness. And so when the Israelites heard that, about what God had planned to do, that God had made this oath, that generation of Israelites quickly backpedaled they said okay we, we change our mind we'll go and take the land but then Moses then warns them again no no don't do that now you don't go into the land anymore because God is not with you but foolishly they again don't listen to the Lord as he spoke through Moses and look at what happens as we read this account in Numbers 14, verses 43 to 45. It says, for there, as in, in the land now, the Amalekites and the Canaanites were facing, are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. In other words, they slaughtered the Israelites by the sword and chased the rest of them out of the land as they tried to enter. And exactly as God had said through Moses, they did not enter the land, even though they tried to. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't disregard the word of God. Heed it. The promises and the warnings of God's word, they're not dead promises and threats. God's word is living and active, powerful to bring about exactly what it has said. So much so then the author then goes on to say that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That God's word that brings a judgment is more threatening than any double-edged sword that man has ever made. See, a double-edged sword, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's got both sides of it are sharp. It's really the sharpest sword. It didn't have a blunt side, like a, a normal blunt side and the sharp side on just one side. So what it means is being such a sharp sword, it can really cut through. It's a sword that can be relied on to do its work it will never fail to cut because it's double-edged, sharp on both sides. And the author is saying the word of God is sharper and more penetrating than any double-edged sword that man has ever made. In fact, he goes on to explain that it's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow. Now, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, you can't really distinguish those things. You know, soul and spirit, they're essentially the same thing. It's part of the inner man. And there's no specific point where you can just separate the joint from the marrow that is inside the bones. So the author is essentially saying, you know, what he's actually trying to say is there's not a single part of human nature that God cannot penetrate. Or as one author put it, there is nothing so hard or firm in a man, nothing so deeply hidden that God's word cannot penetrate through it. Close quote. See, right to the innermost being, innermost part of our being, even areas which seem impossible to pierce, impossible to distinguish, God's word can slice through, right through it. And, it, and then it goes on to say, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, as God's word penetrates through a person, it can discern or uh, assess the thoughts and intention of the heart. You know, our, our, our thoughts and our motives, it's all hidden from everyone else outside, unless we obviously mention it to someone. But God's word can penetrate to the level of our thoughts and even the motives, why we're thinking those thoughts. And it, can, and it can splice it open and reveal and expose what is in us. It can expose sinful motives, the sinful motives and the hypocrisy and the false pretensions of what's going on in our heart versus what we're pro- portraying on the outside. God's Word can really reveal what is going on in our hearts. You know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, I I know myself really well, and I have a good idea of what I'm like. I, I can be a pretty good judge of myself. And, you know, with that kind of thinking, we often see ourselves in better light than we should because of our sinful tendencies we can think of ourselves higher than we ought we can think our motives are, are way better and way purer than they really are And we can think that, oh, I can assess myself rightly. I'm doing okay because we we are assessing ourselves by our own subpar standards. And we're so oblivious to our pride and our sin. And sometimes it's the other extreme of thinking where we're thinking, oh, I'm no good. I'm nothing. I'm I'm worse than everyone else. And just feeling down and, and sorry for ourselves. But that's just another manifestation of pride. An unhealthy focus on the self. And we don't see that that is also pride. Or it can be oh, saying on the outside, oh, I'm not good, uh, you know, it wasn't really anything. And then we're just really just waiting for others, just fishing for compliments to say, oh, no, no, no that's not what it is. You're really good. You're really important. This is This is wonderful. Well, that's pride again, isn't it? And we can be so blind to it. No, we can't discern the depths of our own depravity. We can't discern how sinful we really are. It is only God's word that can rightly discern and reveal our sinfulness. And it can expose us For who we really are. And then in verse 13, the author goes on to say, And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. To be exposed to the word of God is to be examined by God himself because it is his word. And so there's a day coming when every single person, young and old, foolish and wise, poor and rich, educated and uneducated, smart and not so smart, sick and healthy, Every single person will have to give an account to God one day. And no one will be able to hide from God's sight. All will be naked and exposed one day to give an account to God. You know, if you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they were naked and exposed. You know, they were essentially transparent and exposed before God. And that's what end of Genesis 2 says, but they were unashamed. They didn't have a problem with it, even though they were so exposed before God. not just physically, but even immaterially, in every sense of the word, they were exposed and naked. And they were unashamed. But after they sinned, and they realized that they were naked and exposed now, that they were transparent before God, what what do they do? They, They cover themselves, or at least they try to cover themselves with fig leaves and try to hide from God. Why? Because now they dreaded being transparent and exposed before God. They dreaded being naked and exposed before God. But they couldn't hide from God as we we have seen in Genesis 3. And neither can any of us. And a day is coming when each and every human being, young and old, will have to give an account to God and not a single person will be able to hide from God's sight. and the text says that when we have to give an account to God all are naked and exposed you know that word translated there as exposed it's in the original it's closely related to the word throat and so it has the idea of exposing the throat you even get the English word trachea from the original word that's translated here so in ancient times When a criminal was brought to trial, a dagger would be placed under the chin, just near the throat. And where the the throat is exposed and the dagger would just be placed here. Why? So that the criminal wouldn't be able to bow down, but he would have to really face the trial. He would have to face the court. So it's like that on the final day when everyone will come under the scrutiny of God's word. They can't run and hide away somewhere. Oh no, they will have to come face to face with the truth about God and about themselves. And every person will have to face God and the reality of who they really are as they will be completely exposed and defenseless and naked before God just who they are on the inside including their thoughts and motives and every other thing exposed before God you know right now it is possible that we can deceive ourselves that we can deceive those around us we can deceive our family we can deceive our church family. We can deceive our friends, our co workers, or anyone else that we interact with. It's possible that we can deceive others so that what is in our hearts and what we show on the outside are two totally different things. It is even possible to deceive our own selves and our thinking, where we're thinking, oh, I'm okay when really we're not okay with the Lord. But there is a day coming when every action, every word, every thought, every motive will be exposed and we will all be laid bare before God and we will have to give an account to God for it and there is no way to escape it. This is how powerful living and active and piercing God's word is that it lays us bare like this. Now, here's the question. When the word of God says, therefore be diligent, strive to enter that rest. You know, we can say as believers, but how can we do that? How can we do it well? I mean, who among us can say, I'm always believing, always, perfectly? Who among us can say, I'm always obedient? Oh, let the word of God come and slice me open and expose me and show that I'm not that bad. Who amongst us can say that? And if you're thinking that, I would say to you, friend, you're in the worst kind of deception, where you're deluding yourself. No, when the Word of God goes through our hearts, it exposes our sin. It exposes our hypocrisy and our self righteousness. It exposes our laziness and our lies. Even the excuses that we make, so much of it is because we're lying to ourselves for not making what God has said as a priority. His word exposes our judgmentalism and our lack of love for others. We say, oh, I'm loving others, when, but then the word of God comes and says, no, actually, this is self-serving love that you're doing here. It exposes our rebellion and our unbelief. Every sin really is because we don't believe in God that we're not satisfied in God and trust what he says. We think our way is better, so I'm going to sin and I'm going to go this way. This will what will give me more pleasure, more joy, more whatever. God's word exposes our lack of humility and our pride and our selfishness and our sin and the wickedness of it. And this is what the word of God does. And this is what we all need. See, because unless we are cut open by God's word and our sin is exposed, And all of who we are from the inside out is fully exposed and we realize how helpless we are. We will not be ready then to turn to God and receive the grace of God that is available through Jesus Christ. Even those of us who are Christians, unless we realize, even living in this Christian life, It's not because of some inherent goodness or strength that I possess that I can continue in the faith and really strive to enter God's rest and some of those others can't. No, because I'm still prone to sin and wander away from God who is only good to me. So unless we're laid bare for all that we are by the word of God and we realize our helplessness, we will not see our need to continue to cling on to Jesus in our everyday lives for mercy and for grace and help to reach our final destination of rest. And this brings us to our second point, the help from God's son. In verses 14 through to 16. Since then, or since therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, when we recognize that we are utterly helpless to stand uncondemned before the judgment of God, before that sword of God, when we recognize that, that's what will help us then, now we're ready to turn to the mercy and the grace of God that is available through Jesus Christ alone. The author really wants us to despair of ourselves. So that we can see that our only help, only grace and mercy is going to come from the eternal Son of God who is Jesus Christ. Now it says here, therefore, since therefore, so the word of God has spliced us open, has exposed us. But then he says, but then understand this, believers, believers, we have a great high priest. Now what's so special about a high priest? See, in Israel, there were many priests. But there was only one high priest at a time. And this high priest was the only person who was authorized to enter the most holy place in the tabernacle or the temple. And this, in this most holy place was where the... Uh, Presence of God was manifest. The Shekinah glory of God was present there. It was a manifestation of God's presence. So once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would take a sacrifice to the most holy place to make atonement for sin and make intercession for his people as their advocate. In fact, even with the high priest clothing that they wore, the, the effort and the breastplate that you read about, in, uh, particularly in Exodus 28, it talks about it. What you see there is that uh, on the high priest clothing, on their shoulders, as well as on their breastplate, there were precious stones which had on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was to show that the high priest ministry was not just for any people, not just random people out there in the world. The high priest was specifically there for the people of Israel, the people of God, who who were the people of God at that time in history. So on the day of atonement, for a short period of time, this high priest would disappear from the sight of the people as he entered into the holy place, most holy place. And no one could follow this high priest into the most holy place. But what we need to understand is that in this most holy place, the place where God's presence was manifest, the place where this high priest was coming to offer the sacrifice, he was carrying with him on his shoulders and on his heart the names of the people of God as their representative before God. And the author says here, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, this great pre- great priest of ours has not entered some man-made sanctuary where God's presence was simply manifest. No, this great high priest of ours has passed through heaven itself and entered the very place where God dwells. He has entered the very presence of God by virtue of his own sacrifice. And he has disappeared from our sight into this heavenly sanctuary as our representative carrying our very names into the very presence of God. Now here's what makes this high priest so great. The author says he's the eternal son of God. The eternal son who's greater than the angelic beings that we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The son who is greater than Moses himself, one of the greatest leaders and mediators under the old covenant. The son who is greater than all other high priests that have been because he is able to pass through the very heavens into the very presence of God because of his perfect sacrifice. Why? Precisely because he is God himself. No mere human high priest would be able to directly enter heaven into God's very presence with their animal sacrifice. And the author also reminds us that this great high priest is not only the eternal Son of God, but that he reminds us of his name. He is Jesus. That's his human name. That in heaven there is a man, one who is fully God, yet fully man, representing us before God. And did you notice the text you know it does not say there and since then there is a high priest in heaven no it says we have a high priest he is our high priest currently yes he's gone into the heavens he's currently out of our sight But for all believers, we currently have Jesus, the eternal son of God, the God-man as our high priest in the heavens, carrying our very names before the very throne of God. He is our high priest now. Currently. Not was, not there will be at some point. Right now, he is our high priest. Now the question might come, okay, that's, that's wonderful that Jesus is our high priest. Representing us and you know, he's exalted in the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of the father. But how can he help me in my troubles and my afflictions down here on earth? I mean, isn't he so far removed and the exalted great high priest now in the heavens? And so then the author wants to answer that objection by saying, verse fifteen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the weaknesses here. It refers to our our frailness as human beings. The limitations that we have as human beings, all the frailties and the weaknesses, including that proneness to sin. Now, when you think of Jesus, yes, he became fully man, and we saw some of that in the previous chapters. He became hungry, he became thirsty. You know, he experienced anguish as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane thinking about what was going to happen on that cross and he sweat drops of blood. He experienced grief thinking about when Lazarus died and and he wept. His flesh was torn apart, ripped off his bone and he experienced pain And you know, often when we, it's when we experience, go through these human frailties, pain and suffering and whatnot, we're most prone to sin, right? They become opportunities for us to sin. Or when we experience even injustice from others and, and mocking from others, and Jesus certainly experienced a lot of that. But for us, we are all those instances make us very prone to sin then. But Jesus, on the other hand, yes, he understands our weakness because he was fully human. But it says that he was without sin. See, the difference between Jesus and us as a human being, let me just quote, uh, what one author says: None of his temptations arose of a sinful disposition, such as fallen men have since Adam. All of Christ's temptations came to him from outside himself. So when we undergo all kinds of experiences and limitations and frailties of being a human being, we are then tempted to sin. And yet for Jesus, that temptation to sin did not come from inside him. It just came from outside. Now we saw this before. But what makes that so great? We saw this in chapter 2. The problem with us is we go through those weaknesses. We give in to our temptation very quickly. And so if, if the temptation comes this way, or the whatever, and we quickly give in. But for Jesus, he experienced the full force of temptation to its highest degree and yet never gave in. I mean, he had the devil himself tempting him. It doesn't get any worse than that. You know, f- few men will like, ever experience the devil himself. Te- uh, we might have his minions tempting us, But the devil personally tempting us, few of us will ever experience that kind of temptation. Yet that is what Jesus experienced. But he never gave in and he was sinless. Now here's the thing. It says he understands our weaknesses, he understands our proneness to sin and therefore he's able to sympathize with us even though he was without sin now some might object at this point but how can that be i mean if jesus never sinned how can we how can he sympathize with our weaknesses and understand our temptations i like how one commentator he gave this good analogy and he sort of said that just because Jesus didn't actually sin or experience sin doesn't mean he can't have understanding of it. And he goes on to say, for example, a person can have many successful operations. He can experience the operation and yet never understanding anything about that operation. Just because someone's gone through about 10 operations doesn't mean that the next day now, that person can get up and operate now. And yet he has ex- that person has experienced many operations. But on the other hand, the, the author says, a doctor may perform thousands of complicated and successful operations without ever having the surgery himself. It is his knowledge of the disease or the disorder and his surgical skill in treating it that qualifies him and not his having the disease. He's had great experience with the disease, much greater experience with it than any of his patients, having confronted it in all of its manifestations. End quote. And so just... Does Jesus understand our weaknesses? Yes, from our general frailty of human beings. Yes, he understands it. Does he understand the proneness to sin? Oh yes, he's seen it all around. And yet he did not succumb to sin and the temptation. See, when you think of the sinlessness of Jesus, I mean, think of, Think of a dead person. A dead person cannot respond to anything. Everything is numb to that person. Think of a person who is close to death, for example. The way that person would experience thirst and hunger would not be like a, say, a teenager. Very different. Why? Because this teenager here is way more alive, way more fresh, so to say, versus this person who is on his deathbed, and when you think of Jesus that way, as being perfectly sinless, so full of pure life, you know there's sins around us that we are numb to, so numb to that we don't even realize that it is sin. But Jesus, being sinless, experienced sin all around him, everywhere, constantly. Assaulted by sin 24-7 in a way that no human being ever has. Because no part of him is ever numb to sin. And so does he understand our weaknesses? Oh yes, he was tempted as well and yet did not sin and he sympathizes with us. And so then the author's conclusion, therefore, is let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, mercy. Mercy is something that you get when you deserve condemnation, when you deserve judgment, and that doesn't come on you. That's what mercy is. Grace, on the other hand, is favor, positive favor given to you. And so, why is it that a person who's sliced open by the word of God, who knows that they stand bare, naked, exposed to God, there's no hiding from him? Why is it then we as believers can still with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because that throne of grace is where we receive mercy and grace. Because at that throne of grace is our representative, our high priest, the God-man, the one who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, so that now we who still continue to fall away or prone to fall away can still receive mercy from God because of what Jesus has done. And then grace and help to continue to persevere on in the faith. You know, just this last night, uh, our youngest son Judah has been quite sick for the last few days. Uh, And even last night, he woke up and uh, just coughing, very uncomfortable. You know, we brought him into our bed. Uh, He just went on coughing and uh, whimpering and, you know, he was just awake. And after some time, you know, all I was thinking was, well, I need to sleep, I need to sleep, so I, I'm not too tired and I don't have a foggy brain when I have to preach God's word this morning. And here I am, preaching about the fact that we have a high priest And with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Do we all need mercy even now? Yes. Do we still need grace to continue on? Yes. And it is available through Jesus Christ, our high priest. I wonder if there's anyone here sitting this morning who is here and is not a believer, is not a Christian. You know, perhaps you've heard some of these things. Perhaps you've heard the, the word of God and the good news about Jesus and wh- whatnot. But you haven't really accepted it. The Bible says, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Not just listen, but submit to what the word of God has to say. You see, this flaming sword of God's word of judgment stands between you and entry into that eternal rest of God. And if you continue to harden your heart, that sword of God, if right now you can continue to run away from it, you think you might be running away from it. But on that final day, that sword, flaming sword, will splice you open and reveal you from the inside out for who you are. And you will stand guilty before God and he will say, you cannot enter my rest and he will damn you to a life of eternal damnation in hell but if this morning you recognize oh yeah I see how I've been hardening my heart I see how I've been listening but not really I've been hearing but not really listening and this hasn't impacted me in any way well friend if if you're seeing the weight of your sin and your helplessness before this flaming sword and this all-seeing God, I want to tell you this. The good news is this, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And this flaming sword of God's judgment fell on him. It fell on the Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of people like you and me so that all who would put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ would find mercy and grace to enter this rest of God. Turn to Jesus while there is time and find your hope in him. Now in closing, I just want to quickly address one more thing. So does this mean, therefore, okay, God's word Yeah, just cuts, pierces, it's bad, it's horrible, it just exposes us. But Jesus, oh, he's great, help, mercy, all of that coming from him. So I just need Jesus, I don't need the word of God. No, that would be wrong thinking, and I would say if that's what you're thinking at the end of this sermon, then I haven't explained myself properly. You see, God's word... It is good that we come under the word of God. That we regularly come under the word of God and we are spliced open and our sin and our hypocrisy and our pride and our everything else is exposed before this holy God. Not so we can feel bad about ourselves, but so then we can see our need for Jesus and we can run to this high priest of ours confidently running not by looking at ourselves not by looking even at the strength of our faith but looking at the great high priest that is seated at the right hand of the father the one on whom the sword fell the one who took your judgment so that now you can confidently without any threat of condemnation enter the throne of grace and you will find grace and mercy there because of what Jesus has done and so when you do that then the word of God and the promises of God and the warnings of God then just become a guide. As we're clinging on to Jesus, these things simply become a guide. They're not scary anymore, but we understand, oh, this is good for me. And they just become a guide to help me stay on that narrow path to lead me to that eternal rest. So what's the secret to persevering in the Christian faith? It's that we keep coming to Jesus in his word and through prayer. That we keep coming and we keep coming and we keep coming where there is pardon and welcome and sympathy and help and not just not that just we simply contemplate him, we actually come to him and seek forgiveness from him and not just forgiveness from him, then even mercy and then help so that I can live this life of faith by faith in him. May these words cause us to cling on to Jesus. May these words cause us to sit under the word more and more so that we can see ourselves rightly, so that it would cause us to cling on to Jesus more and it would lead us to that eternal rest that God has promised in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Through your word, you you cut us open for our own good, so we see our own sin, so we see our own pride, our own self-righteousness, our own self-reliance. And Lord, may we ever always want to be in your word so that we would understand more of you and more of ourselves, our true selves and our proneness to sin. And Lord, even as we see that, may it cause us to run to Jesus, our great high priest, in and through whom we find mercy because he bore our condemnation and our judgment. And where we find grace then to persevere on, to continue to strive to enter the rest that you have promised. Lord, even this day as we have heard your word, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. We pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. This we pray for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.